Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. Now let's ro- uh, open our Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, and we're almost finished with the book of Romans, but we're continuing our study today through the book of Romans. <clears throat> and let's pray as we open God's Word. Lord, we, we remind ourselves once again that this is your Word, your holy Word, that you've given not as suggestions for our lives, but to lead and guide and direct and inform every area of our life. And so we now submit ourselves fresh to you and the work of your Spirit, and we ask that you would speak to us from your Word now. In Jesus' holy name, amen, amen. Let me get a drink of water because I'm going to get like choked here for a second. All right. Now, if you guys remember um, back through the book of Romans, most of the book of Romans and certainly those early chapters were all about the theology of our salvation. Then as we got more toward the middle of it, it became about how we are to personally live out that truth of new life in Christ. But then as we come to chapter 14, last time we were in the book of Romans, and chapter 15 this time, these two chapters begin to delve in a bit into church dynamics, meaning how you and I relate to one another within the church, the dynamics of what goes on within the people in this room. And this is an immensely important subject because our effectiveness in ministry and mission out there in the world will be directly connected to the health of the church in here, meaning how well we're taking care of one another within the four walls will affect how effective we are out there in the world. And I'll talk more about that in just a minute. Now, Chapter 14 was all about being careful not to stumble your brother, not to stumble those who are weaker or more fragile in their faith. The reality is that some people are just more mature in their faith and more solid in their walk with the Lord. And then there's other people that just aren't quite there yet. They're less mature, they're they're a little more shaky in their walk with the Lord, and that could be for multiple reasons. It could be because they just came to the Lord, so so they're new to a walk with the Lord, so they don't have that solid foundation yet. It could be because of something in their life, like like they've kind of been walking away from the Lord, and, and they've been dabbling in this sin, and it's kind of weak in their connection with God, and so they're more shaky in their faith. So for whatever reason, there are some that are stronger in their walk with the Lord, and some that are less mature and shaky in their walk with the Lord. And chapter 14 was telling us, Those who are strong are not to look down on those who are weak. And so in the issue, in in the context of what was going on in chapter 14, they were primarily talking about issues within the Roman church, that of what people were going to eat and drink and what day they were going to celebrate on. That, That was the immediate context for the Roman church in chapter 14. And for us, it's a different context. That might not be the issue that somebody might be stumbled over, but for them, it was 
it was food and what day of the week they were going to meet. And that was largely because there were Jewish people who were getting saved in the Roman church. But for their entire lives, they had been following this really strict dietary law. And for their entire lives, they had been observing this one day as holy. And now they're no longer under the law. And they're set free from these things. But it's taken a little while for them to adjust to this freedom in Christ, this new life in Christ. The Gentiles who hadn't walked that way for so long wasn't a problem for them. They, they were good. They'd eat whatever they wanted and meet whatever day of the week they wanted. But, but for some, it, it was a, a, a struggle from some of the residual things of their past. And Paul's point there in chapter 14 is to be mindful of them, those, those that may not be where you're at yet. Don't degrade them, don't look down on them, and be considerate of them. Don't be condescending to them, and don't flaunt or brandish your freedoms in Christ if it's going to damage someone who's not where you are yet. And so the opening verse of verse 14 says, now accept the one who is weak in the faith. So it starts with acceptance. But then when we come to the opening verse of chapter 15, it goes a step further. Beyond just mere acceptance, look at what it says. It says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength. Not just pleasing ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good and for his edification. That word edification means to build him up. To, to help them get stronger. If somebody's down, you come and you encourage them. So, if chapter 14 is a warning against disregarding or stumbling or damaging somebody in their weak, who's weaker in the faith, chapter 15 is all about getting involved in their life, about going to them and helping them and lifting them up and bearing their weakness is what it says. And so now it's no longer enough to just not be negative towards somebody that's weaker. Now scripture's calling us in a positive way to serve them and support them. And this makes a lot more sense when we as a church understand God's design for the church. This thing that we are, God has a design for it to be united as the body of Christ. God always intended His church, all born-again believers, to be this interconnected, interdependent community of love, where every part, meaning all of us, are a working part, and every part is needed, and every part is valuable, and everybody is to see that they have a God-given calling, purpose, and mission for themselves. Now, not everybody walks in that, right? Not everybody sees that, not everybody walks in that and understands themselves as a functioning part of the body of Christ, but that's the way it was meant to be. We were meant to be united as one body, stronger when we're all strong, weaker when, when people are failing to uphold their part, but we are united. And, and so Paul would write in Romans chapter 12, verse 5, he says, we who are many are one body in Christ. And we're individually members of one another. We all belong to one another. Whether you like it or not, 
as scary as it is, we're all in this together, is what he's saying. That all born-again believers are united because we're united in Christ. We all have the same Holy Spirit within us. We all have the same precious blood of Jesus that saves us. We all have the same citizenship in the kingdom. We all have the same mission to proclaim the same gospel. We all have the same eternal home waiting for us. We're all already united. Sometimes people will say, the church needs to get united. That's not accurate. The church is already united. The problem is we need to act like it. We're all already united in Christ. We just need to act like the brothers and sisters that Christ intended us to be. And so because we are all united in Christ and we're all on the same team, we are to help one another along, especially when one is weaker. And that's why we're being told here to bear the weakness of others. So what that means is we then become proactive, right? When we know or when we see a brother or sister struggling, we don't just stand at a distance and wish them well. Man, I hope that works out for you over there. We go and we, we see how we can get involved and we help them. We, we enter into their struggle with them. Now that's messy, of course. But the reason that we do this is because our example, Jesus Christ, did that for us. He entered into our weakness. And that's what verse 3 is talking about. It says, For even Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's a quote from Psalm 69.9. And the point of it is this, that Jesus came and met us in our weakness. We were all condemned sinners headed for hell. We had no way to do anything about it. And Jesus came and took upon himself our sin, our shame, our guilt, and our judgment. He bore the full weight of it upon the cross. You see, he came into our struggle. Jesus didn't just stand at a distance wishing us well. Man, I hope you guys can figure out that sin thing because you guys are in a lot of trouble now. He didn't do that. He came to us because he is Emmanuel, God with us. It's who he is. He became one of us. He made our burden his burden and he entered into our struggle. It is the most obvious when you read of the life of Jesus throughout the Gospels. He was intentional, was he not? Not only coming to us, but then going to the hurting. He went to the marginalized. He went to the outcast and he pursued them, went after them. He went into the pain of others. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus with, his, with Lazarus's sister. He literally went there and wept with his friends. He went into their pain joined them in that. And he ultimately took the full measure of our guilt upon himself. And so because that's who Jesus is, that's who his disciples are intended to be too. He is our 
example. And that's what Scripture says. Look at 1 Peter 2.21. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered. Now, read this. He is your example, and you must follow in His steps. So who He is, is who we are to be endeavoring to be. He is our example. And so that's why Paul would write in the very familiar verses in Philippians chapter 2, this. He says, make my joy complete. And notice the unity here. Make my joy complete in being of the same mind. We're going to see that phrase again in just a minute in our text. He wants us to be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united together in spirit, intent on one purpose. How will we do this? We'll do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Tell me how hard that is. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Why would we do this? Because we have Christ as an example. Verse 5. So have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have the attitude, have the same heart and the same mind that was in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant, became a servant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so what those verses are telling us is this, that God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, the one that has the most power, made himself a servant for our sake. That's what it's talking about. What Jesus did is he flipped the script. He reversed the value system. You see, in our world, the typical use of strength is what? To gain power, influence, control, and authority over other people. That is the typical use of strength. That's our selfish, sinful nature coming out. If I have strength, I want to use it to gain influence, power, control, and authority over somebody else. But Scripture calls us to the opposite of that. Because Jesus is the king of and the number one example for a kingdom which is totally opposite to the way of the world. And it's hard sometimes for his disciples to get this. To reverse the value system. good example is in Matthew chapter 20 where James and John go and get their mommy and they bring him to Jesus in an effort to get position in the kingdom. So James and John, instead of coming to Jesus on their own, decide the best move, if we really want to make it in this organization, is to get our mom to come with us and to plead with Jesus that that we might have the most prominent positions. And so mom comes and says, okay, Jesus, I know when you go into your kingdom, you're going to be on the big throne in the middle. Like, yeah, you're Jesus. But can my sons be on thrones next to you? I mean, yours is going to be big, but can theirs be pretty big too? She's fighting for the two top prominent positions in the kingdom. 
So what's going on here is they're jockeying for position, aren't they? They're trying to set themselves up for the best of positions with Jesus in the kingdom. Well, when the other disciples hear of it and they get wind of it, they get furious. But they're not furious because of some righteous indignation. It's not as if they're going like, you know, James and John, like they're not as holy as us. They're mad because they didn't think of the idea first, right? They're like, man, we should have went over there and asked for those positions because we would have been on those thrones then. And then what does Jesus do? He calls them all together to tell them of what is important in his kingdom. What are the values of his kingdom? And it says this in Matthew 20, verse 25. But Jesus called them and he said to them, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and the great men exercise authority over them. So he says, you guys know how the world works. When somebody's a ruler, they're a boss, they're a prime minister, president, king, Caesar, or whatever they are, when they've got strength, they use it to rule over people, bring people in subjection to them, and and assert their authority over them. And then he says this in verse 26, but it is not this way among you. And he flips the script. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you shall be your slave. Now, why would we do this? Because of our example. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus is saying, you guys know how the world works. The strong use their strength to promote themselves. But he says, in my kingdom, in Christ's kingdom, the greatest use of strength is to be used to lift someone else up. The greatest use of strength, the most noble use of being strong, having authority, having influence, is to lift others up. And then we come to verse 4. It says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for your instruction, so that through perseverance, or some of your translations are going to say patience here, through patience and encouragement scripture uh, of the Scripture, we might have hope. Now, he begins to pray in verse 5. Now, may the God who gives perseverance, or the God who gives patience and encouragement, grant to you the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. So verse 4 is saying that one of the reasons for Scripture, and there's a lot of reasons for Scripture, But one of the reasons is to teach us patience and encouragement with other people around us. And then verse 5 is a prayer for that patience and encouragement. He says, God, would you grant them that they would have patience and they would be encouraging to the people around them. Now, the fact that Paul puts it into a form of a prayer means what? That he recognizes that this type of strong, others-centered unity is only a work of God. So he puts it in a prayer. He tells us, listen, this is what you guys need to do, but I know you can't do it. So I'm going to pray it for you, and that should be a prayer of ours as well. That God would give us the grace, the patience, and the encouragement for other people. Then the rest of verse 5 tells us the outworking 
of this grace, this patience, and this encouragement for other people. Look what it says. That we would be of the same mind. Some translations are going to say we'd be in harmony with one another or we would have the same mind. Now, we need to make a a distinction here. When the Bible calls us, all of us in this room that are born-again believers, when the Bible calls us to be of the same mind, it does not mean that we're all going to agree on everything, right? Because we're not, are we? We don't all agree on everything. In fact, chapter 14 was largely about having grace with people that don't agree with you on secondary issues, less important issues. That's what 14 was all about. So we're not all going to agree on everything. In fact, we're going to differ on a lot of things. And it's okay for us to differ on things. Some of you guys have strong views on what translation of the Bible we use. We're going to differ on some of these things. Other people have different views on politics than others. We're definitely going to differ. Right? Probably in this room, there's a hundred different views on political issues and social issues and all of those type things. We're going to differ on our views of some secondary doctrines, meaning something like spiritual gifts or when the rapture happens. They're important doctrines, but they're totally secondary. And we may differ on these things, but here's the point. We don't ever divide over them. We can debate them, but we don't divide over them. And this is an important thing for us to establish because oftentimes Christians divide over really silly, dumb, secondary, not important things. Now, with that said, there are several essential doctrines that we won't compromise on right? That, that we have to stand by. We, we will divide over these. There's not many of them, but there are some. Things like the atoning death of Jesus and the actual physical resurrection of Jesus and that we're saved by grace through faith alone. Th- those are non-negotiables. Those are essentials to salvation, so they can't be overlooked. But beyond that, there's an awful lot of secondary doctrines that just really aren't that important that we can divide over or that we can disagree on but should never divide over. And then beyond that, there's an awful lot of opinions that we hold that we should never, ever, ever, ever divide over. And so what is Scripture talking about when it says we should be of the same mind or we should be in harmony with one another? It doesn't mean that we're all going to agree on everything the same, But the key to understanding it is that last phrase in verse 5. Look at verse 5 again. Notice what it says. It says, But be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Or another translation says, As we follow Christ Jesus. What it means then is this. When every one of us that are born-again believers in this room, when every one of us have our eyes on Jesus, when He is the main goal of all of us, when His pursuits become our pursuits, when our character is being built to be more and more like His character, we'll be more united and we'll be of the same mind with one another or we'll all be heading in the same Christ-like direction. When our eyes are fixed on Jesus, then secondary issues will be secondary issues. But let's keep the main thing the main thing. 
I have a friend that had a great illustration for this. I wish I could claim it as my own, but I can't. But he was getting ready to preach on a similar type talk years ago, and I still remember it. It was such a good illustration. And he was getting ready to preach on, on a topic, and I'm assuming that he used it in, in a sermon, but he said this. He said, think about it like a concert, like, like, a, like a rock concert for like your favorite band. I guess not everybody likes rock music, but your favorite band, whoever your favorite band is, like the best band in the world. Who's the best band in the world? Leonard Skinner, hands down. No disagreements. Hey, listen, that's an essential of your faith right there. No, I'm just kidding. I'm from the South. I have to say that. But, and I'm going to get emails tomorrow. I guarantee it. But they are. Um, but just imagine, whoever your favorite band is, right? You're going to this concert, right? Down to the Blaisdell. You got your tickets in hand, and you're super excited, and you're amped. Because this is like the best band in the whole world to you. And then there's going to be like, whatever, I don't know how many people fit in the Blaisdell, like, you know, whatever, 20,000 people or something. And it's like their favorite band too. So everybody's going to see their favorite band. But kind of like when you're driving there, there's things that are frustrating. Like you pull in the parking lot and like it's always crowded and you're trying to get a spot. And for some reason, the guy in front of you cannot seem to get his car in and he has to back up 27 times. And you're like, dude. And then you're getting ready to pull in your spot and somebody whipped in there and you're like, man, that was my spot. Right? And you're frustrated in the parking lot and you go inside and you're like trying to get up to the stage because this is the best band ever and it's your favorite. But what's happening? Like everybody's crowding the stage, right? And they're throwing elbows and pushing their way to the stage, right? And everybody's trying to get up front. You're like, dude, give me some room. Like I need a little elbow space, a little personal space here, you know? And you're getting frustrated with people. And everybody in there is kind of like fighting for themselves to put themselves in the best position. There's some selfishness going on, right? But then the band hits the stage, and everybody in the room's focus changes, right? They break into Freebird, right? And everybody's good. Everybody's singing the same song. Everybody in the building is bouncing to the same rhythm. You're high-fiving the people around you. You've never met these people in your life. You're all sweaty, and you're all jumping at the same rhythm. You're bumping into each other, and it's okay, you're okay with them. Someone's crowd surfing and they're like, you're all holding them up, right? We're all in this thing together and we're all focused on the band and we're all amped because this is the best and our most favorite band ever. And then it's over, right? And they turn on the lights and tell you to go home and the band goes, gets on the bus and goes somewhere else. And what happens then? You're all like, dude, you're all sweaty. Don't touch me. Like, just kind of get out of my way. Watch out for where you're going, dude. I'm just trying to get to the door. Like, you know, and you're like, stop bumping into me. Why are these people in the hall? It's like, get out of the way. Just can't you people walk already? You get to the, right? You get to the parking lot and the same thing. Like, can't these people drive? Like, I'm just trying to get home. And you're back to selfish. You see, when the band was on stage, and they were everybody's focus. We were all good. But when they were gone, our focus changed. We went back to selfish mode, looking out for our own things. And my friend goes, man, that's, that's the same way we are in the church. As long as Jesus is on the center stage, as long as every single one of us are focused on him, 
As long as we're all bouncing to that same rhythm and we're in tune with what he's doing and he's leading and he's guiding each of us and we're all about his business, we're not really worried about the secondary issues, are we? Like when we're all focused on Jesus, we're not all worried about what translation somebody's reading. We're just like, dude, I don't care. Read your Bible. It's all good. Just read the thing and I'll be happy with you. We don't care about your view of end times. Yeah, we can debate it and talk about it, but it's not an essential anymore because my eyes are on Jesus. I'm about his work. I'm in tune with him. That's the most important thing. We're not looking at everybody's faults. We have so much more grace and patience and encouragement for one another. We're like in that concert. We're bumping into people, but we're okay with bumping into people. They rob us a little bit wrong. It's okay because our eyes are on the stage and Jesus is in the center of it. And we're intently focused on the one who has given us so much grace so we have grace for other people. But the moment that we take our focus off of Jesus, the moment that you or I take him off of the center stage, we have far less grace for other people. We, we, we look at people's faults way more than we're so much quick, so much more quick to, to find faults and get aggravated with one another. We get more self-serving and less others surfing, serving. And so our church and our unity depends on you and I, all having our focus on center stage. All of us looking at Jesus. We'll have so much more grace for one another. And we will be the church Jesus intended us to be, which is unified. And when we are, then look at verses 6 and 7. When we are, it tells us, so then with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, accept one another just as Jesus accepted you. And what is the result of that? To the glory of God. You see, Christ-like unity inside the church will bring glory to God outside of the church. Our relationships and our love for one another are supposed to reveal things about God to the world around us. This is the way Jesus put it in John chapter 13. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you may love, or even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And the result of that is this. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That means that Jesus should look attractive to the world around us based on the relationships, the love and care that we have for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. How we treat each other will be a part of our witness to the world of who God is. People that don't know Christ yet will look into the church and they'll say, who is this God and what does he look like and what are they going to look at? They're going to look at the people that claim to be trying to be more and more like Christ to get a glimpse of what Christ looks like. And so being the church, a part of being the church anyway, is striving 
to represent Christ's character rightly. Now, don't miss what I said. Being the church means that we have to strive to represent the character of Christ rightly, and the character of Christ, the very nature of God, is unity. Because God has always existed in a community of love. He's always, from time past, existed as a community of love. It's His very nature is unity. That's the mystery and the beauty of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have always existed as an others-centered community of love from all eternity past. And we get a glimpse of that as we read through the New Testament of how that works. We read of the Father pointing to and confirming His Son. This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. And then we have Jesus glorifying the Father. Jesus said, I came that the Father might be glorified through me. And He says, I only say and I only do what I hear from the Father. And then Jesus is pointing to the Holy Spirit. It's better that I leave so that you guys can get the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit is testifying of Christ and bringing glory to the God to the Father. And so throughout the whole of the New Testament, we get this glimpse of the others-centered, selfless, loving community, which is the Trinity, which is the very character and nature of God. The Father's pointing to the Son. The Son's pointing to the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit's pointing to the Son and glorifying the Father. God has always existed in a community of love. And therefore, by design, God designed His church, which is to represent Him and His character, to also be what? A community of love. And so, in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for the church. He says this in verse 20. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who will believe in me through the word. So, so Jesus is in a room with His disciples And he begins to pray, but his prayer is, Father, I'm not just praying for these guys in this room. I am praying for them, but not just for them. I'm praying for every disciple that will follow me because of the word that they're going to share with the world. So who's he praying for? All of us, the entire church. And this is his prayer, verse 21, that they may all be one, even as... You, Father, are in me, and I in you. They also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. Our unity will be a witness to the world around them. Then he says in verse 22, The glory which you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. Just as the Trinity is one, he wants us to be one. Um, I in them and you in me, that we may be perfected in unity. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Every time I read those verses, it blows my mind that Jesus' desire When Jesus prayed for his church, for us that are gathered in this room today, when Jesus prayed over us some 2,000 years ago, his prayer was that you and I would be one. 
united this community of self-sacrificial love just as He and the Father and the Spirit are, just as the Trinity. And if we are, He says, the result of that is that the world might be exposed to God and what He's done for them. And so, who we are to one another, who you are to the person sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you, who I am in relation to you, is supposed to be based on who God is and who is God. He's love. He's others-centered. He's self-sacrificial. He's forgiving. He is compassion. He is peace. He is grace. He bore the weakness of those without strength, us. And then he says, this is an example for you guys to follow. So bear one another's weaknesses. That's who we're to be. That's how we are to relate to one another. Let's pray. Lord, we we first and foremost recognize together as a church that what you've called us to is not easy. But we also recognize that's the reason you gave us your spirit to make it possible. We are selfish by nature. You are selfless by nature. And so we need you, Lord, to do the work in our hearts that will cause us to look upon a brother or a sister in need and go to them with a heart of compassion that you had. So Lord, we pray as a church together that you would build that into us. We are already united. We're already united in you, but we need to act more like it. And so Lord, we pray that as a church together to be a right representation of you, you unite us to be who you want us to be, that we would treat one another the way that you would have us treat one another, love on one another, have compassion and empathy for one another so that we might be able to preserve our witness to this world. We pray that people would be able to look into this church and see and feel your love by the way that we treat one another and treat them. We recognize, Lord, that in our selfish nature, that's something that we need you to do for us. So, Lord, we ask as your church now, anoint us for that. Anoint us to be the church that you long for us to be. We pray this together now in Jesus' name. Amen.